The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the taproot of the Christian faith. Some plants have a taproot system. Others have a fibrous root system. I know you didn't come here for a botany lesson, but I think this is helpful. A fibrous root system, as you see depicted here, is a branch out below the surface of the soil in a network of random patterns. And if we would think of the doctrines of the Christian faith in this way, we might yank at one here and yank at one here over in this place, and it wouldn't really affect all that much. But a taproot system is different. There is a single large root that grows downward from the plant with smaller roots branching off of it laterally. So if you want to uproot such a plant, you must get the taproot. Pulling on these lateral roots will accomplish little, but if you get that main root, you get the taproot, you get the plant. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to uproot the Christian faith, you must eliminate the taproot of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, the enemies of Christianity have long understood this. For 2,000 years, there has been unrelenting attacks on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There are many who, even believing in the facts of the resurrection, have resisted it and sought to hide it. But for 2,000 years, there has been this attack. And as Bible-believing Christians, we do not hesitate to agree that this is precisely where the rejecter of Christianity should attack the faith. Because we readily admit that without the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing. We read of that earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Take out the resurrection of Christ and we have nothing. This gathering today, indeed, is a collective announcement that we rest our eternal souls on the historical reality and the prophetic significance of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. We gather each Lord's Day here to announce just that message. But whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, There's great profit in understanding the seminal attack against the resurrection of Jesus. The first tug at this central taproot of the faith. The narrative of this resistance is found here in these last chapters of Matthew. And Matthew, in fact, includes some ideas here that are not included by the other Gospels, probably because they particularly pertain to the Jews to whom Matthew is uniquely writing. But he writes here about a cover-up on the death of Christ. But all of this begins, of course, with Jesus' death. And then we will pick up the account in verse 57 of chapter 27 as we look at Jesus buried in Joseph's tomb. It's essential to establish this historical piece of the account of Jesus' resurrection. He was buried in Joseph's tomb. Verse 57, we'll pick up there, following the agonizing death of Christ where He faces the judgment of God, is crucified in the sinner's stead, and now is buried. A crucial piece of this message of salvation. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 
Now, it was protocol in the Roman army to leave a corpse of a crucified man on the cross until the flesh rotted away or until the birds ate it apart. However, it was known for friends and relatives to be permitted to retrieve a body off of a cross, but never in cases of high treason. Keep that in mind. So, despite the charges of the Jews, Pilate knows that Jesus is not guilty of high treason. He grants the body to Joseph. Now, that's amazing in itself, and a whole sermon all on its own. Joseph, we learn from other texts, was a hidden disciple. Here he's called a disciple, but we find that he was a secret disciple. He had not agreed with the Sanhedrin's decision, but this is a prominent, wealthy man. He sits on this great council of the Jewish authorities. He has much to risk here. He is risking his reputation. He is risking his place on the Sanhedrin. He is indeed probably risking his life because he is identifying with one that the Jews would have seen as cursed by God, bringing down this body, caring for this body of this criminal would be to identify with his message. And this is a very dangerous act, an act of courage on Joseph's part. Verse 59, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, something like a large white sheet. And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. So near the place where Jesus died, the wealthy Joseph had a tomb carved into the face of a rock outcropping, something similar to, we might think, just right into the wall that's behind me here. But he cut that into this wall and created this tomb. Now, this is not the tomb necessarily where Jesus uh, was placed, but just that picture of it. And I want you particularly to look uh, here, we won't look at it later, at the rounded stone that is set off to the right of the picture, which will be rolled down into the place. Now, this isn't necessarily typical, but at least gives a good picture of that concept of a stone rolled in the place of the entrance. Now, aided by Nicodemus, we learn, and uh, probably several of their servants, the two men lower the cross. They loosen the dead body of Christ from it, and they wrap his corpse in a linen shroud, something like this great white sheet that they wrap around and then carry his body to Joseph's tomb. We know he needs to do this. He's in a hurry. The Sabbath is coming, and he needs to get this done before uh, sundown. And so probably in an antechamber, that is this entry chamber, the body is laid there. Likely the shroud would have been ripped into strips. And then we learn from another account there were 75 pounds of spices that would have been laid into these strips as they were bound around the body of Christ. And he was preserved in that way. Then they laid this body on a shelf that was cut out of the rock. And the men retreated from the cave with agony of heart. That large disc-shaped stone that you saw, something like that was positioned then to roll downhill along a groove slot, which was then seated at the entrance of the tomb. I think the picture that we saw here was probably a fairly small rock. This one was said to be very large, and there are some historical reports later that say it would have taken 20 men to roll it out of position. 
using gravity, they brought it easily into position. But to get it out of that groove and to pull it away from the entrance of the tomb would have taken many strong men to move that stone. It was sealed. It was in place. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably referring up above to verse 56, the mother of James and Joseph, uh, were sitting opposite the tomb. That is, they marked the place. They know precisely where this is. And in verses 62 through 66, then, we come to this rather strange uh, happening. Joseph's tomb is sealed. And this is the account that Matthew preserves uniquely for us, this first matter of great resistance to Christ in his death and concerning his resurrection. So Joseph's tomb is sealed. This also is a very crucial part of the account. The next day, verse 62, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. That doesn't honestly make a lot of sense to us. But this is after the day of preparation. To the Jews, that would have meant something unique. It shows how desperate these authorities are to stifle all attention to Jesus. That particular Friday, coming before a high Sabbath, that is a Saturday that coincides with the festival of Passover, this was a special Friday called the Preparation. The next day is this high, holy Sabbath that falls on Passover. This was unique to the Jews. And here they are, these leaders, they would not walk into Pilate's presence the day before lest they defile themselves, but now they've really got trouble. And on this high Sabbath, they go right into the presence of Pilate because they need help. They say to him, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. They've forgotten to take care of this little matter, and so they ask for some help. But let's stop there for a moment. What do they know? What do these enemies of Christ know about the situation? They know that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross. There's no argument there. They know that Jesus was buried in a tomb, and they know where the tomb is. As they come to Pilate, all of these things are in their mind. They're very aware of these facts. They refer to Jesus here as the imposter, that deceiver who leads people away. They are so sure of his deception that it could be that something might happen with this promise that he would rise in three days. Now, that also is an amazing point. It's three days, by the way, just quickly, is a figure of speech. It doesn't mean three complete entire days, but any part of these three days in a contiguous pattern, any three of these days would be referred to as three days. So it's a small part of Friday in their reckoning, all of Saturday, the Sabbath, and a small part of Sunday morning, is, and that fits his prophecy. But in veiled terms, Jesus had told these Jewish authorities, I will rise from the dead. But in very specific terms, he has told his disciples, I will die and I will rise again. And certainly there was news of this message that traveled. And these authorities remember this teaching. And they're concerned about it. They're concerned about it, as verse 64 says, they're asking Pilate, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
Having told the disciples many times that he would defeat death, Jesus has set himself up in their thinking for great defeat, but also has set the table for greater deception. Now, ironically here, it is the enemies of Jesus who are anxious about His predictions of resurrection. The disciples seem to have forgotten all about them in their sorrow and in their concern. They're just in grief. They don't remember these words of Christ. They don't understand them yet. These individuals, however, are raging against reality. And you think about it, you'd like to say to them, why don't you just pull up a lawn chair set a bonfire in front of the tomb and sit there for one night and see what happens. Why do you have to set a guard that's going to kill people if they take them? What if Jesus does what He said He'd do? Do you want to be found fighting against Him? No, they set a guard. Because of pride. Because of selfish desire. Because they really don't want to know what God might do. So, verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Or, as the marginal note reads, take a guard. However, we take the phrase, take a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Now, there's debated meaning here as to what Pilate means particularly, and also as to whom the soldiers are. Are they Jewish soldiers? Are they Roman soldiers? It would appear that the best position is that these are Roman soldiers. The reason being is Jewish soldiers would not be permitted to exercise military action away from the temple area. No army could do so. No soldiers could do so. This was Rome's world. And so it's very likely that these are Roman soldiers, perhaps those that were already involved in guarding the temple. At any rate, whether Pilate's cynical or just frustrated with these people. We don't know his attitude in part, but it does seem to some degree that he's a, he's a bit cynical in what he says. Go make it as secure as you can, verse 65. Do the best job you're able. You have the guard. I'm sure that Pilate is thinking in part, these people are crazy. Who cares? The man is dead. You all know it. He's sealed in a tomb and you know where he is. Take a guard. Make it as secure as you can. He's probably a bit cynical too when he thinks of the disciples if he were able to do so. Where are they? The disciples are clearly tucked away, cowering in fear behind locked doors in darkened rooms. The one thing they don't want is for anybody to find them. They are a ragtag group of utterly defeated and exhausted Galileans, not Judean grave robbers. But do we see what is happening here? Because of the condition where the disciples are, think of what is taking place as the divine hand orchestrates all of this. The enemies of Jesus are playing right into God's hand. By setting a guard, they are initiating one of the surest tangible proofs that Jesus' body was not stolen. Imagine if the disciples had set the guard. But no, these are people working, laboring to say, He's in that tomb. And He's not coming out. Make it as secure as you can. Disciples are completely incapable of taking on this guard. They're not in any state of mind. They're not even physically capable of doing so. These boys are in for a long night. 
Verse 66, the guard is set. They went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. If it's a guard against the disciples, you ask why. If it's a guard against the power of God, they might as well take on a tornado with a pitchfork. What's the point? But the guard is set and they're playing into God's hand. And there is a sealing of the stone, we note in verse 66. They went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Generally, a stone would be sealed with a cord. It would take a long cord and they would stretch it across the stone and with hot wax or with clay, they would set a seal on either end of the cord. And so that cord cannot be moved Cannot be, that seal cannot be broken without violating the authority of those that set the seal. So the cord is stretched across in whatever way they particularly sealed it. It is sealed with the seal that says no one is to enter this tomb. They don't realize that they're saying no one is to leave either. But they are just concerned about those who may come to steal the body. Now there is no way to move the stone without breaking the seal there is a Roman guard that is set. There are authorities that are aware of this and they have set the seal so that anybody who comes to this place knows they must enter this tomb on pain of death. The irony is again that these enemies have unwittingly set in place an ideal demonstration that Christ's body was not stolen. Everything they're striving to do is to prove it can't be stolen, and they're proving just that. It could not be stolen. As we come to chapter 28, we'll move fairly quickly through this, but we find the uh, mention of Jesus rising from the tomb. The account is significantly compressed. There's much more detail offered by the other Gospel writers. But here we read in 28.1, After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. There were others who were arriving there as well. But behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The seal is broken. The stone is rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. And the soldiers fall unconscious to the ground in terror. Now, none of this is done to let Jesus out of the tomb. He's already gone. It's almost as if it's just left unsaid. It's so holy. What actually took place there, what's clear is that He's risen from the dead as the text of Scripture plays out. But this was all done to let others into the tomb to confirm that it was empty. And an angel said, verse 5, to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. There's two ways of looking at angels in our day that are acceptable. One is you absolutely dismiss them as myth. Or the other is that you make them very common. They're just normal people walking around among us that we just don't realize it. What we see in the biblical text is neither of these things is the case. When anyone sees an angel, it's a big deal. The, the soldiers fall down, they faint for fear. 
These women are petrified. Angels don't show up around every corner. They're rare appearances, but angels are real beings. They can appear. And they do. They frighten the soldiers nearly to death. And they very much concern these women. But this angel has a great message. He says that Jesus is risen. He's going before you into Galilee. Now, He's going to appear to them in Jerusalem first, but ultimately they're all going to assemble up in Galilee where they have a little more freedom. They'll rendezvous up there. They'll spend time with the risen Christ. And even in one place, some 500 people see Him together at once and commune with Him there. He'll be going ahead to Galilee. Ultimately, that's the next step in the whole process. These women cling to Jesus' feet, we read. They departed quickly from the tomb, verse 8 with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. What does that mean? He's real. He's a real body. It's not a ghost. They cling to His feet. He appears actually to them. And then Jesus says to them essentially what the angel did, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. Jesus is alive. The women have seen Him and they run back into the city. Now there's somebody else running back into the city, or maybe we should say slinking back into the city. And that is the next segment, which again completes this unique section in Matthew as those who seek to oppose Christ are seeking to carry on a deception. So we see the the deceivers hiding Jesus' resurrection in verses 11 to 15. Verse 11 As the women are hurrying back to the city and proclaiming good news, the soldiers who were assigned to guard the sealed cave on pain of death are coming back with a different message. One is a message of joy, our Savior is risen. The other is a message of shame and fear, we've lost Him. They come before the authorities. Verse 11, Going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The earthquake, the angels passing out in fear, waking up, scattering some of us coming before you. They certainly didn't march into town together. But they steal into town a few of their representatives and they say, we've got some problems here and we need your help. We were commissioned to guard this tomb against grave robbers. We did not stand a chance against an earthquake and angels. The tomb that we were supposed to keep sealed was burst open with divine force. What were we to do? The other question is, what are we supposed to do now? They're in really big trouble. Verse 12, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, that is, they send out the messengers, they call all the bigwigs together, in the great council of Israel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They've always got money somewhere. Judas gets a little. These guys get a lot. They said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. I say they got a lot of money because the text says they were given sufficient amount of money. We have to understand these men deserve to die. They did not guard a sealed tomb The penalty for Rome was death. I mean, Rome wasn't too worried about being nice. They were worried about being efficient. That's why they left corpses on crosses for weeks and weeks on end, for no one to get the wrong impression that they were going to be forgiving as an empire. 
You were going to do what we told you to do. You send soldiers to a, to a tomb, it's sealed, and they lose the body, they die. It's all understood. Now, these soldiers have a reputation. These are the soldiers that fell asleep on the job and lived to tell about it. It had to be a pretty significant bribe. They've got no future. They've got no reputation. They need to be looking for another job. These are the bitter enemies of Christ. Let's think of it again. They never doubted that He was dead and buried. They never doubted the tomb was empty. There's no fight or discussion among them. In fact, as verse 15 says, they took the money and did as they were directed and the story has been spread among Jews to this day. The only question now is what on earth are we going to do about this? We are in serious trouble. The Sanhedrin says, take this money, tell this lie. Remember, they're trying to stop a deception, which they stop with deception. Take this money, tell this lie, and if it's needed for more bailout money, we'll be good for that too, and we'll take care of Pilate if he finds out about it. This is utterly ridiculous. Can you imagine the questions these poor soldiers might have been asked? So, you guys all fell asleep. You're guarding a sealed tomb. And you all live to tell about it. Really? Yes, that's right. That's what happened. And if you all fell asleep, you all fell asleep, how is it that you know that someone stole the body, but more importantly, you know who stole the body? And you were all sleeping. Amazing story. And how could the disciples of Jesus roll back the stone and steal the body without waking a single one of you? Every one of you slept through the whole thing. You guys who are trained to keep watch through the night and know that you're going to die if you don't. That's amazing. Yeah, that's right. We slept, all of us, through it all. We're really tired. And can you imagine? This is ridiculous. And then I can hear the next thing. And I noticed you came, you all ended up buying four new robes together recently. You fell asleep. Really. This weak explanation, riddled with holes, was held until Matthew's day as he writes this account some three decades later. It's still what people were saying. Justin Martyr writes in the second century, indicating that the Jews were still believing this same story. Now, as time passed, new stories came up. You can always do that. When you get far enough away, you can say anything about George Washington. You know, because nobody lives that knew him. So you can say anything you want if you, if you go far enough into the future. And that certainly took place. The Jews came up with some other ideas because this was really a pretty ridiculous story. But the first attack, let's acknowledge it, the first attack on the resurrection of Christ was not a denial of the historicity. It was how His body was removed from that tomb. The first attack on the resurrection was actually a shameless cover-up. And again, as I said, now so far removed, we can add some new ideas and new ways that it might have happened because no one's around to correct us who was there. These soldiers knew. They knew what happened. And they went into the very enemies who crucified Christ and they told them what happened. 
the first attack on this taproot of the Christian faith was a shameless, deceptive cover-up involving money and everything else. That is as good as anyone could do until long after these soldiers were dead. What did they know? What did the leaders know? Let's think of it again. They knew, they knew Jesus was dead. There was no doubt about that in any of their minds. If that was a theory that someone came up with, that he had just swooned, that he had just fainted on the cross, there'd be a soldier there saying, you are an idiot. This guy over there that I know drove a spear into his side. He's dead. Come up with a different theory. They knew that he was buried. They knew where he was buried. They knew that this tomb had been sealed with a guard. He rose from the dead in fulfillment of his prophecies. They knew that as well. And not one of them could answer why the despondent, fearful disciples who fled away from Jesus when he was captured were suddenly transformed into courageous witnesses proclaiming the risen Christ far and wide. And every one of them to the end willing to die for this message. They weren't willing to die even for Jesus and his teachings when he was alive. But now, they're all willing to die, and no deception is ever uncovered or even ever hinted at among the followers of Christ, many of whom are martyred for their witness. Explain that by you guys fell asleep, and they took a dead body out and came up with this good story. It's ridiculous. From the very beginning, it was clear that the resurrection of Christ was the taproot of the Christian faith. And it is inherent to Satan's agenda to attack this reality. This resistance started immediately and it has never let up. But let me say that it is also not an issue of the evidence. The evidence is there. I illustrate again from Jewish scholar Simon Greenleaf a renowned authority in jurisprudence and a professor of law at Harvard Law School. In fact, he's widely credited for being one who, has, who helped Harvard rise to eminence as a law school. Greenleaf was known to repeatedly remind his students never to decide a case until they had considered all of the evidence. And he was teaching one day in a course, and just off the cuff, he dismissed the resurrection of Christ. Think of it, this is a very uh, smart guy and a Jew, and he has no reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And he just dismissed it in class. He was embarrassed when one of his students turned the professor's famous dictum back upon him and said, but professor, have you considered all the evidence? He was a bit miffed by this, Greenleaf was, and he left the room and decided, I'm going to consider all the evidence and I'm going to prove this thing a hoax. This is ridiculous. A man rises from the dead? Come on. He was a gifted lawyer, and he took his search seriously. And when he got to the end of it, he was forced to say, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Eventually, there was no other option but to embrace this Christ as his Savior. And this man's book can be read today, Testimony of the Evangelist Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in Courts of Justice, 1846. There's no one that argues with his capacities. And there's no really arguing with the evidence that he pulled together. Move forward 
a century, early in the 20th century, a lawyer named Frank Morrison believed the resurrection of Jesus spoiled what was a wonderful literary tragedy. Morrison set out to rewrite the gospel story. He said, this is ridiculous. This is such an amazing account of this good man who lived this righteous life and then is unjustly crucified. Let it end where it should end. Don't tag on this ridiculous story about resurrection at the end. He set out to write, write the story the right way. But he too was a lawyer. And he too began to assemble all of the facts. And as he did... He came to realize Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he wrote a book entitled, Who Moved the Stone, fittingly. In the providence of God, and thanks to the feverish efforts of some hostile opponents of Jesus, it is now perfectly clear that no one removed Jesus' corpse from the tomb. And no one has an answer for this. But Christ Himself on the third day, I will rise again. It's also then clear that resistance to Jesus' resurrection is not a matter of lacking historical evidence. This resistance is really a rebellion of the heart against God. That's what it was on day one, and that's what it is today. The Jews who crucified Jesus called Him to come down from the cross... Prove that you're the Son of God. In one sense of the term, Jesus said, I'll do better than that. I'll go through death and come out on the other side. I won't just save my life here. I will die that others might go with me through death into resurrection life. Did they believe? No, here they are, covering up the reality. Why? These are the same people that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, wanted to kill Lazarus. Put him down again. Maybe this time it'll work. They're completely irrational. The reality of the matter is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that He is the Lord of life. That He's defeated death, our greatest enemy, and the consequence of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus beat death. The problem is our rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the difficulty. That's where the rub comes. This resistance, let me say, may not be active denial. It may be simply this. You live as if the resurrection of Christ has nothing to do with anything that is important to you. You live every day with no sense that the resurrection of Christ has anything to do with anything important to you. If you say, you know, honestly, that's me. I mean, I've heard of the resurrection of Christ. You probably wouldn't be here if you hadn't at least heard about it. I've heard of the resurrection of Christ, but honestly, it doesn't have anything to do with my life. If Jesus didn't make it out of that grave, it really wouldn't make any difference to me. Here's the things I want to get done in life. Here's the things that mean something to me. Here's what I love. Here's where my lusts and cravings are. And the resurrection of Christ, it got nothing to do with anything. If that's you, you are living in active resistance to the resurrection of Christ. It's not because the facts aren't there. It's because you don't want to deal with the reality of those facts and the implications. The implications are that Jesus Christ is the living King of kings and Lord of lords. 
as his death and its implications are worked out in the New Testament accounts, we are told that he died because of our sins. He bore the wrath of God. That's one thing the enemies of Christ were right about. He was cursed by God. He bore the wrath of our sin, the wrath of God against what we have done to break the law of God and the idols that we have in this world. His death paid the penalty as Jesus stood in our place, dying and suffering the penalty that we should suffer. His resurrection is His victory over sin and death and Satan. Our justification by faith alone in Christ's work on our behalf is the result of this of trust in this message. And that is really the only answer. If you find yourself in resistance to the death and the resurrection of Christ, if that is evidenced by the fact that His death and resurrection have nothing to do with your daily life, then tell me the things that you love. Tell me the places you want to go. Tell me what you want to accomplish in this life. And I will define for you your idols. Those are your gods. This God who beat death is a long, long ways from the affections of your heart. The only answer is to take all those dreams, to take all those pleasures, to take all of those lusts and all of those places where you violate the law of God, pile it into a big pile and turn your back on it. Not to say you'll never do again the things that you enjoy necessarily, but to say I turn my back on who I am and what I have to embrace the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. That He died for my sins. That He rose in victory over death. I receive that message. And I realize that He is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. He said He would beat death and He did. Will you face Him in eternity as judge or as Savior? He holds out pierced hands to you to say, I desire to receive you as Savior, not as judge. But make no mistake, this Christ will baptize with the Spirit or He will baptize with fire. There is a judgment to come and the reigning Christ will lead that judgment. He is risen from the dead. He reigns today and He will return in power and glory. Will you meet Him as Savior or as Judge? Let's bow for prayer. Father, for anyone who must say as Judge, I pray that You would help them to see it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it is by Your mercy and Your grace that we may be saved. It is not by sinning little that we make ourselves able to be saved. But show such people, Father, I pray, that salvation is by grace alone. That the chief of sinners can be saved. For those of us who have embraced this message, who long to see You as the risen Savior, though we've not seen You, yet strangely our hearts are drawn to You and there is a genuine, palpable love for You in our hearts. God, we rejoice. We thank You for the victory of our Savior. And we bow now in thanksgiving in His name, rejoicing in His reign and in His soon return, praying that You would meet us as Savior 
drawing all to yourself to see the wonder of Christ's death and resurrection. May we submit to it. May we not fight reality, but may we rejoice in the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is provided in Christ Jesus the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.